Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, episode number 88. And we have a much requested guest from our audience. My name is Daniel Foch and I'm joined here by Nick Hill and we have, who else we got on the show here today, Nick? Thanks, Dan. We've got a back by popular demand, actually. The people have requested our friend and resident tax and accounting expert, Patrick Cassette. Yeah, this is true. He is an expert on the the following topics, which today I guess we're going to cover corporate taxes, specifically in regards to real estate, real estate tax strategy, and then also a much requested one, which probably will will fall flat uh, and might not be discussed much here uh, hereafter. <laughs> yeah. uh, this, the old Smith maneuver. Yeah, the Smith maneuver. Very interesting. You know, it, it's it's funny how these things work out. This is something I've been curious and have looked up multiple times throughout my life and have been interested because it seems like one of those like secretive, like, you know, if you can figure this out, like this is the key to success right here. Here's, you know, here's a, here's a financial tip, a financial secret. So we had Patrick on after we'd had a bunch of people reach out and emailing us and asking us, what is the Smith maneuver? And more importantly, how do I execute it? How do I implement that? And is it worth implementing into? Should I? Should I? Exactly. Is it worth implementing into my, overall strategy here and we're not going to tell you what patrick said right now because that would be giving away the episode so he we get into that in the latter half but yeah you're right dan we do talk about taxes tax deadlines you know gst hst stuff that you need to know capex opex understanding the housing taxes and patrick goes into all the details as he usually does and if you haven't heard our other awesome episodes with our buddy Patrick. Go back and check out episode number 39, which is about buying real estate in a corporation versus your personal name. And episode 56, which is real estate investing tax tips. Yeah, I, I was pretty interested to hear the, the, his feedback on the Smith Maneuver for sure. And um, it, it's just generally always a pleasure to have Patrick on the show. I know we do have a, a longstanding beef about uh, <laughs> yes. the the origin of a certain um, Canadian clothing item that we get into. But, uh, but you know, Patrick's a wealth of knowledge. Uh, for those of you who, for, for context, he um, is an accountant at ledgerly.ca especially specialized knowledge in real estate accounting. And uh, we're happy to have him here on the show as a expert witness of sorts to, to help guide our listeners in, in the right direction. I love that expert witness. That's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny, Dan, you and I talk about the importance of having a power team and, and I'm sure you and I get this question all the time um, or questions that more are more pertaining to, you know, deep and important accounting and and tax strategy and et cetera. And, uh, you know, what's the point in having a power team if you're going to try to answer those questions yourself? So we defer those questions to Patrick because he can answer them better than we can. Yeah, I think it was like, I don't know if it was um, Einstein or like Socrates or somebody like that, but it was like the more the more you learn, the more you learn that you don't know. And I think in real estate, it's really like I, I you know, pride myself on being somewhat of a generalist in the real estate space. But I think as you really start to get further and further down the path of, of, you know, getting into that 
like I guess deeper into real estate investing, you start to realize that there are things that are just out of scope that you should be outsourcing to people who know them better, who can think about them better, who are who are legally qualified <laughs> to answer <laughs> these questions better. Um, as professionals like you and I, we shouldn't be answering certain questions, um, shouldn't be discussing certain topics, but also, you know, as investors, we shouldn't be making guess or we shouldn't be operating in sort of like this guesswork. We really should be outsourcing certain things to professionals. And so that's why we like to have professionals of this nature on the show on a regular basis to make sure that our audience gets the information that they need. So without further ado, let's get to this great discussion with Patrick. So Patrick, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. I got my, uh, I got my, my Keswick dinner jacket on here. Celebrating oh. the occasion. Had I known, I would have worn my full yet dinner jacket. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go, right back into it. So you'll <laughs> you'll notice in an uh, in a previous episode that we announced that we're going to be doing merch, and this is actually in your honor. We're trying to figure out a way to have Canadian dinner jackets because apparently we've heard from quite a few listeners on the show that this dinner jacket belongs to a number of cities across <laughs> the country. Highly disputed. I think there's a big branding opportunity there. Oh yeah, it's happening. That's going to be the Canadian real estate investing podcast dinner jacket. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just rolls off the tongue. Um, so dinner jackets aside, we do have some pretty serious stuff to uh, talk about today, Patrick. We're going to be talking about corporate taxes, which for anyone that is currently holding real estate in the corporation or for people that are self-employed or anything like that, you know that that's around the corner. Uh, And then we're also going to finish up the episode by talking about a fairly requested topic, um, the Smith Maneuver, which I'm excited to hear your take on personally, because something that I don't have a full grasp on myself. But before we do that, before we get into actual corporate tax season and, and what people need to consider, why don't we start kind of back at the basics here and give us a little bit of a rundown as to why someone should open a real estate or why someone should buy real estate in a corporation, maybe some high level pros and cons. I know we did another episode about it. That's episode 39, buying real estate in a corporation versus your personal name. So go back and check that out. But high level, let's chat about that. And then we can work our way into the more nitty gritty tax stuff. My favorite topic, taxes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, at a high level, um, you really got to think real estate investing and it's really, you know, anything that you're doing is is about, you know, you're really running a business. And in a lot of cases, the pros and cons, especially from a corporation perspective, you know, you're really isolating those assets within that corporation. So you have that effectively corporate veil, which if you remember in episode 39, you got to be careful what you are signing um, because that in some instances, a personal guarantee can come into play there and impact that structure. Um, another significant component behind that um, is really that, you know, general generational wealth planning that a lot of families um, are starting mm-hmm. to look at and do, especially with the affordability, affordability issue that we're having um, today across Canada. Um, another big item behind that is, you know, really from a risk mitigation perspective, and that's about isolating the assets within these corporate vehicles, more from an asset protection perspective, as well as an optimization from both from a tax perspective and a leverage perspective for, um, you know, investing and um, acquiring uh, loans and things like that for expanding the portfolio. 
for sure. That That's great. Now, if I want to go start a corporation to hold my real estate assets in, how do I do that? It's, is that just an easy online application? And then, hey, I've got a corporation. Trust me, it's good. You know, what, what are the process of, of actually allowing that corporation to hold real estate and starting it? It's actually fairly quick now, thankfully. There's a couple of players that have uh, come into play. Um, in a lot of cases, we do provide this service um, if anybody is, is looking for assistance. However, if you just Google um, incorporation in Canada, um, there's a lot of service providers out there. Um, one that I've seen used quite frequently is actually called Owner, um, O-W-N-R. Yeah. It's purple. You see it all over on Instagram. We're trying to get them um, as a sponsor they, on the show, to be honest yeah, with you, because oh, nice, I'm like, nice. you have the best, highest intention marketplace in the world the people who literally need a corporation to buy real estate so if anybody knows owner anybody listening knows owner tell them sponsor we've actually started multiple corporations in in owner just in the last like year or two so i'm happy you said that yeah oh there you go i may i may have a contact so i'll make a note and see if we can make that happen love it deals Um, getting done recorded on the show here we go (laughs) i think we like deals (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, so if I, you know, from a timeline perspective, it's actually fairly quick um, to create the corporation. Um, it usually takes about a week, sometimes less than that. Some of them can uh, turn them around fairly quickly. If you remember in episode 39, we talked about the two main types. It can either be a provincial registered corporation, so an Ontario Inc. type corporation, or it can be federally uh, registered, so it's across Canada. One thing to remember is wherever you do plan on transacting, so let's say you are creating a corporation in Ontario and you're buying rental properties in Alberta, you'd have to make sure you would also register in Alberta to transact in that province. Mm. However, if you do do a federal registration, you're registered across all provinces across the board. Um, The other thing to consider as well when you're creating the corp is you're obviously creating separate bank accounts. That's usually the longer uh, part of the process is working with your bank to get the bank account set up. That's usually about a week process. So all in all, I'd probably say about two, three weeks to create a corp. Okay, that's great. And then once I have that corp, I can go buy a duplex in it immediately and just hold it there, right? Simple as that. Yeah, simple. I wish it was as simple as that. Um, <laughs> right. a, a lot of the cases, um, especially when you're just starting off, so a lot of the new investors and the listeners, um, you know, it's important to consider that you know your your lenders and, and creditors will want to see history. So obviously, if you're just creating a corporation, you don't have financial statements, you don't have credit history, or anything like that. They will need something um, to review and to collateralize themselves against. So in a lot of cases, they will actually ask the shareholders of the corporation. Um, to put what's called a personal guarantee, um, which effectively provides them with access to your personal assets if there's ever an issue or payment issue or anything like that on the property. So just be careful and and make sure you understand what the implications of that uh, are. However, in terms of acquiring the assets within the corporation. Um, it's simply just you have to make sure that on the agreement of purchase and sale is the actual corp that's acquiring the entities and not you personally. Yeah, no, those are those are great points. And, and just to clarify, the reason that you can't just buy in a corp without having any history is because essentially with a corp, you've created you know, a new entity, almost a new person that has the same business rights as something like that. So you'd have to put up collateral through a personal net worth statement. And essentially, that means that if you don't pay, the bank can go after those assets that you've got on essentially a lien against that. So um, okay, I think that's a great overview. And for anyone that wants a deeper dive, go back and listen to our other episodes, just Patrick, that are episode 39 and 56. Why don't we start chatting about uh, 
what people that are currently holding real estate in the corp, what they need to know for this tax season. And I'll start things off here, Patrick. Why don't we talk about tax deadlines? Something that I that I dread every year, but uh, maybe I'll get better than yeah, that one's rhetorical, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 quite a few deadlines, especially on the corporate side of things. And again, it depends. Maybe before I, I, I talk on the tax side, I'll just take it back on the types of income because that actually can differ of when each apply. Um, so if you remember in the last episode, we talked about the you know, real estate investing is a fairly broad topic. Um, you can invest in a number of different streams, whether it's actually investing in acquiring the assets and renting the assets out. So you can also be in complementary services like we're doing on the accounting side, like you're doing on your side from a broker's perspective or from a real estate perspective, you know, it could be property management, et cetera. So from a CRA perspective, um, there's, there's a fine line between the definition of what's considered business income and has a different tax treatment for tax purposes. Um, and what's considered rental income, um, which effectively any income you're earning on a property for the purposes of renting. And if you don't um, have more than five employees, it is considered what's called special business investment income and taxed differently under um, the Income Tax Act. Now, in terms of um, the application of the various deadlines uh, from a corporation perspective, there's three main accounts that you would need to register for. Um, first one I'll talk about is GSD and HSD. So if you remember in the last episode, we talked about the application of when HST applies. So general rule of thumb is if you're um, earning more than $30,000 per quarter in sales, you would typically have to register for HST. However, um, rental income on long-term properties is actually considered exempt um, from an HST perspective. So you, if all you're doing is just generating long-term rental income, then you do, you do not necessarily need to register for an HST number, have to worry about remitting and collecting that. However, if you're in short-term rentals or if you're in any of the other complementary services within the real estate industry, you're more than likely required to file for an HST number and file and make sure that you're filing and remitting that HST to CRA on an ongoing basis. Now, in most cases for a lot of the new investors, you would actually be on what's called an annual filing requirement. So if you are on a non-December year end, so if you remember when you create a corporation, um, you actually have to designate what's called a year end for the corporation. You get most, to decide your, when your year starts and finishes. You got it. Yeah. So most most people will just use the calendar year. However, I do see a lot that are using a June year end or a September year end. So if you're not following the calendar year, um, your HST returns and payments are due three months from that year end. However, a little bit of a bonus here is if you do use the calendar month and it is a December year end, um, your payment, and this you got to watch this, it's your payment is due by April 30th, but your return is due by June 15th. So there's a little bit of a timing difference here and you'll see this theme in a couple different things, um, but you just need to make sure you understand that the payment in most cases with CRA and in a lot of cases is always due before the actual filing is due. So make sure you understand that. And given that today is May 2nd, um, that if you do have any HST obligations, you would have remitted that to CRA before uh, uh -oh. April 30th. Yeah. <laughs> 
the the second um a CRA account number that a corporation would, would typically have to register for is a payroll tax. Now, if you're on the rental side of things, you're not employing in, in employees, you don't have to worry about that. Um, but if you do employ some in, in employees through a complementary service business within the real estate sector, then you would have to file for payroll um remittances. And what, again, what would be an example on, of of one of those persons, Patrick? So for us, for example, so we are we are a CPA firm. Um, we do a lot of our customers are on the real estate side of things. We do have employees, so that actually requires us to register for a payroll uh, tax number, and we have filing requirements. So every time we pay the employees, we have to deduct certain taxes um, and remit those to the government on again, um, you know, a filing frequency that's based on that company. So again, most smaller organizations would be quarterly or annually. And those filings and amounts are due within 15 days of that cutoff date. Now, the next one, which is the big one, um, which is an income tax um, number. So I've mentioned three different accounts here and all accounts effectively start with your business number. So when you create a corporation, CRA will issue you what's called a BN or a business number, which is usually about a nine digit number um, that identifies your corporation with CRA. A lot of the companies you're going to work with, a lot of your lenders and um, real estate agents and things like that will ask for a copy of that certificate. All of these accounts start with that business number and then have a designation at the end to identify what it is. So if it's RT for retail tax, that's for mm-hmm. your HST. If it's RP, um, that's for payroll. And then you have the last one, which is for income taxes, um, which you would file your income taxes on. So just make sure, again, even when you're actually applying um, payments on these accounts, you're applying it on the proper account. Yeah, so from it's, income- uh, it's something we see all the time on, on the mortgage side of things, right? Anytime someone's trying to buy, the, we always ask for articles of incorporation. Um, yeah, your corporate uh, your corporate minute book, like articles of incorporation, um, everything business number. Mm-hmm. Now, on the income uh, tax side of things, um, from a deadline perspective, <clears throat> your return um, is due within six months of your year end. However, again, same theme here: your actual payment, so your taxes that are due, are actually due within two months of your year end. Um, if you're um, a small, if, if you qualify as a small business, um, you may have the three months. Um, but in in general cases, a lot of that would be either to the two or the three. So make sure um, that you connect with your CPA and you calculate what your estimated taxes are due and file that um, by that payment due date, um, even while they're working on that return, because your return is actually due to CRA after the payment is due. Interesting. So what about um, like keeping separate financial records? Like what, what do you recommend on that? Because this, this seems like it's starting to get a little complicated for the average person that is just trying to manage a couple rental properties, you know, or even, even if it's in a corporation, there's that other layer on top of it. What do you recommend about, you know, keeping those financials siloed or, or how, do, how does that work? So if if you are running any of your your real estate um, through personal, I mean, at the end of the day, record keeping is critical. You have to keep records. Um, I highly recommend that you actually create a separate bank account to keep those transactions separate. However, once you're investing through a corporation, it actually is a legal requirement. Um, you are legally required as a business owner to keep up to date 
and the keyword is up to date and mm-hmm. separate books for the business. So no, a box of receipts at the end of the year or an Excel spreadsheet summarizing all your transactions does not qualify as proper statements. You have to actually go through the motions of creating financial statements. They have to be presented to the board of directors. They have to be approved by the board of directors and all of these records. Um, and this even applies from a personal basis um, need to be kept for a minimum of six years. So it's important really from kind of a habit perspective that you get into the habit of actually keeping this up to date on an ongoing basis. So you don't have a big scramble at the end of the year to try and get everything into your accountant and try to file your taxes. Now, what we do on our side, um, we have a lot of our real estate clients on a monthly plan um, where we actually keep everything up to date. We take care of the record keeping. Um, so it allows us to kind of provide more of a proactive type service uh, to our customers. Um, and we have them set up on a cloud ledger. So it's fairly easy for us to generate financial statements at any time. Now, the other component, which we talked about slightly, which is I mentioned the corporate minute book, which is effectively a legal register with all of the details of the corporations and the changes of the corporations. Now, that also needs to be updated on an annual basis. And this is often overlooked or forgotten. So on an annual basis, typically when you're filing, finalizing your financial statements and filing your return, you should all be also be doing your annual shareholder resolutions, annual director resolutions, and filing your annual returns, which is different from income taxes with the varying governing bodies. So if you're registering the corporation in Ontario and Alberta, et cetera, you have to actually have to renew that registration on an annual basis. And this is often forgotten and comes and becomes an issue when you're trying to you know, get new financing or get new loans or trying to expand it in a different jurisdiction. And all of a sudden, you're, you're, you know, the corporation is considered non-compliant because these things are not done. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, for uh, you know, simplicity's sake, I know we have a lot of real estate um, professionals listening as well. For the most part, for bookkeeping, like I mean, especially for for properties where there's not a ton of money going in and out. Um, I use a service like Mint, where it just kind of hooks up to the bank account and automatically tries to categorize stuff, and you can kind of click through because again, you're doing like maybe ten transactions a month or something like that. So you're yeah. kind of like, Oh, and, and you can just categorize stuff and then print it. And, um, and then that, that's kind of like a lot of your bookkeeping element. I wouldn't recommend it for more com- complex sets of transactions, but I don't know what your thoughts are on stuff like that. Or like using trip log, I think account- accountants encourage something like that as well, right. To send off, um, all of your mileage, et cetera. Yeah, we use um, we use a very simple, it's actually in the same product family. We'll actually use QuickBooks, but we'll just set it up on a very basic plan. Um, and we have it set up on the phone. So a lot of the you know landlords, if they're spending something, they'll just slap a pick, it automatically goes in, classifies it automatically. Bank transactions automatically come in and um, are categorized as well. And that on our side, especially on the CPA and accountant side of things, allows us on an ongoing basis to be in the file taking a deeper dive, asking the questions throughout the year and adjusting things throughout the year rather than just the mad rush, um, you know, at the end of the year, trying to figure everything out and push the the, the taxes. That's through. how I do it every year. And I don't see an issue with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's horrible. I stress myself out every year. Don't be like yeah, you guys. It doesn't need to be stressful. It, it doesn't need to be. I just, I learn lessons the hard <laughs> way sometimes. Um, let's talk about, uh, OPEX and CAPEX, which basically just means operating expenses and capital expenditures. Again, operating expenses are ongoing. CAPEX is is larger ticket items. 
Um, do they do they apply differently to people that have real estate in their personal names versus a corporation? How does that work? No, this is actually a really good topic to talk about. And I wanted to bring that up. Um, it applies in both individual and corporation. It's actually a, a frequent point of confusion for a lot of taxpayers. Couple definitions here for you guys. I tried, I was telling Nick, I tried to come up with, you know, kind of a, a word for mine because you got Nictionary, Dantionary. I was going to say Pictionary, but then I have to kind of draw out what <laughs> well, they are. It wouldn't work. No, but... a, we got Nictionary, Danfinition. I'm thinking maybe Danfinition. Pat, 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 Pat Thoris. Pat <laughs> Thoris, like Thesaurus. I don't, I don't know. I'm stretching here. <laughs> so we'll, there's, we'll, there's, we'll circle back on that one. All right. All right. We'll make a note. There's two, so there's two kind of main types of expenses from from a, a business perspective. Um, you have OPEX, as you mentioned, which is operating expenses. And these are expenses a business typically incurs through normal business operations. And they often have a short-term benefit to the company. Whereas CapEx or capital expenditures are larger costs that often yield uh, longer benefits to a company. Um, CapEx assets often have a useful life of more than one year. So things like build, so, you know, bringing this back to real estate, things like buildings, furniture and fixtures, large repairs and maintenance, et cetera. So from a uh, tax perspective, um, you know, the deductibility of those expenses really comes into play. So let's say, for example, if a business spends $100,000 on payroll, it can write off that entire $100,000 in the year that it's incurred. But if that same business spends $100,000 on improving a property, um, you know, fit, let's say fixing a roof or putting in new boilers or replacing the windows and things like that, it must capitalize those expenses and write it off over time through what's called capital cost allowance. Now, capital cost allowance, another definition, um, is effectively um, for assets that have a useful life of more than one year. CRA allows you to um, effectively write off a portion of that asset on an annual basis. Um, there's various guidelines, so make sure you speak to your CPA on that. Um, CRA has a lot of guidelines on how businesses must capitalize the assets, um, different classes of those assets, um, and various um, depreciation um, considerations um, that you need to think about. Now, it's important to note, and this is both on the corporate side and the individual investor side, that cash flow does not equal taxable income. So the deductibility on an annual basis of certain expenses is very different. Um, and it's important that you consider that um, as part of your tax planning. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. Like a lot of people think you can um, tax deduct major renovations against income where you can't, you tax deduct that against ca like um, capital gains, right? And capital cost allowance, which kind of gets dragged to the end. Like, do, is there an easier way to, like, what's the easiest way to explain that to somebody where you can kind of just be like, these are the things that you can tax deduct that are operational. And these are the things that are capital expenses. Yeah. So usually the way that I frame it is anything that you're spending um, to run the business that's consumed within 12 months is typically nice. classified as an operating expense. That's great. Yeah. Anything you're spending that is longer than 12 months would be considered CapEx. That's awesome. That, that's that I've never heard it summarized as well as that. So yeah. thank you. I'm glad I pried for the specific the the Dan finition because it has to be dumbed down for me to understand it. I know I sound smart. I throw <laughs> big words all the time, but I'm actually not. While we're talking about things that aren't smart, because I think you don't like this one, can we talk about 
the Smith maneuver because we get so many requests to have, talk about the stuff. So let's just finally put an end to this one. Yeah. All right. And All right. Before we dive in, I do want to point out that the Smith maneuver, which is again this internet phenomenon that we've gotten numerous questions about, uh, was actually a Canadian invention. It was developed by Fraser Smith, who was a financial planner in Vancouver Island, who came up with the Smith maneuver that he, you know, named after himself, of course, back in the 1980s. And it was popularized by a book of the same name in 2002. And then I guess we've just nonstop heard about it ever since. 21 years later, I finally get the opportunity to hear it explained, hopefully, and I'll understand it. So, Take it away, Patrick. What is the Smith Maneuver? And maybe we can talk about why you like it, why you don't like it, how to implement it, and, and all the good stuff. Sure. And as, as you said, I don't necessarily recommend using this approach because it can be fairly risky if you don't do it properly. Um, but I'll explain the tax implications for, for the listeners so, so there's a general understanding. So generally in Canada, interest on a mortgage is not tax deductible. So outside of certain deductions, small deductions for a home office. However, under the Income Tax Act, a taxpayer can deduct interest costs when there's a reasonable expectation of generating profit. Um, so the Smith maneuver um, effectively uses the concept of debt conversion or leverage by utilizing the equity in your primary residence to reinvest those funds into income generating assets. So the fundamental principle behind um, the Smith maneuver revolves around um, more of that compound kind of frequent investing. So it's really about investing as early as possible, as often as possible, and as much as possible in order to take advantage of compound growth, rather than letting that equity sitting in your home and effectively increasing over time, but being eroded by inflation and often, you know, foregoing a lot of the benefits of compound growth and tax deductibility. Um, the maneuver requires um, the homeowner to have a non-conventional mortgage, so such as a HELOC, which is typically in a second position on the home. And effectively, on a monthly basis, as you're paying down your mortgage, so your, your primary, your first position, um, it increases the balance that's available in the HELOC. And then on a monthly basis, the principal that you're paying, you draw that back out of that HELOC to invest in other income generating assets. Now, the other income generating assets can be, I've seen people use this for stocks, for investments. I've seen people use this for acquiring properties and things like that. Um, as that debt, that component of that debt is now being used for the purposes of generating income, you can now deduct that portion of the interest expense against the income that it generated for income tax purposes. Now, I caution that while you are paying down your mortgage, so you're still making monthly mortgage payments, um, the total debt balance on that property does not decrease over time because effectively, as you're making your mortgage payment, you're pulling it out back out to reinvest through the HELOC. So the total debt on that property stays at the same amount. Now, if you do choose to use this method, I highly recommend you speak to a financial advisor and you have to pay attention to your ratios their cash flows and really understand the risks of stacking this type of product um, and using this approach. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe you should just go talk to Mr. Fraser in general, because, yeah, uh, you know, it, it sounds great. And I, I'm, I'm trying to keep up here because it kind of almost sounds like monopoly, you know, pass, go collect $200 and just keep, keep it riding. So you're paying down your monthly mortgage. 
You then transfer that money into a HELOC, which is at a higher rate. You then take the money out of that HELOC to go buy a duplex or Apple stock or Dogecoin or whatever the hell you want, something that you think is going to make you more money. It ideally makes you money. And then you take that money and kind of cycle it right back through and you're able to write off the taxes through that tax process. Is yeah, that, is that you tax it up the yeah. interest? Yeah. Yep. I mean, to me, it just sounds like a, com- a complicated. Sounds it's like almost a lot of work. Like, it feels like a little bit of like a scarcity thing, right? It's like you're trying to like really scrape. Like, I think like to, to do something that complex, no offense to anybody who does this, but like I'd, r- I'd rather just like really focus all of that time and energy on doing another deal exceptionally well and making more money than like, you know, like really picking at the margins. But a lot of people like, you know, like a lot of people really do. What is it like uh, penny, penny wise and pound foolish or the, whatever the opposite is. Yeah, I don't no, know. That's, but- that's, that's it. Yeah, totally. Right. You get, you get lost in the nuances of, okay, well I can, I can take this money out and we can put this money back into here. But yeah, Dan, I'm totally with you. I mean, why not just let it do its thing and figure out how to make more money through, you know, a side hustle or your current job yeah. or the lifting, you know, and adding value to an existing property or something like that. But you know, interesting nonetheless. It's well, actually, I will, I will, sorry, I apologize, but like I've talked about this a couple of times on the show, but I haven't really mentioned it in a while. But in a lot of cases, the best thing that most people can do is their job. Like go and make more money, you know, mm-hmm. don't like try and reinvent. It's like you don't be, you know, like DIYing half of this stuff, pay the right person to do it and go out and make money because you're the best in the world at that thing. Otherwise you'd be getting paid more or you know, you'd have a different job or whatever. Like capitalism seems to be relatively good at rewarding people for what they're good at. So like do what you're good at and then invest and hire other people to do what they're good at. Don't try and like kind of whittle away at those. Well, I don't know. I could be wrong, but. Yeah. I was just going to say, right. Like what's, what's the average rate on a HELOC right now? Almost eight, almost eight, 9%. Where are you going to get that return? Right. Right. To cover that interest cost. Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you either know market. something that we don't, <laughs> yeah. and if you do, yeah. please reach yeah. out Give to me the a call. show. Give me a Dogecoin or whatever the new one is, PayPayCoin. Yeah. <laughs> so, so overall, I mean, this it's it's again, it's it's funny because the Smith maneuver is one of those things. It's like shrouded in in secrecy, almost. You know, it's like everyone talks about it, but no one really seems to understand it almost. And and now hearing it explained and hearing it explained to the sense where a simple guy like me can explain it back to you and, and kind of understand it. Uh, I, I, first of all, I feel a lot better. So thank you, Patrick, as always for, for making it easy to digest there. But, you know, with that understanding, I, and again, it feels like a time and a place thing, right? Maybe it worked out when rates were like r- way lower. Uh, HELOCs were lower. Stock market returns were a lot higher. Um, I think maybe in an environment like that, it, it makes more sense. And, and this is funny because Dan and I just did another episode on like the 1% rule, the 2% rule, the 70% rule. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with those, but one, the 1% rule is essentially, you know, if you buy a, a million dollar house, it's got to make $10,000 in rent. If you buy a $500,000 house, it's got to make $5,000 in rent. Um, and that doesn't include a bunch of stuff like mortgage payments and principal and interest and all this other good stuff. So we had kind of decided that those rules were almost obsolete in, in today's market with inflated real estate costs and interest rates, et cetera. And I kind of feel like I'm moving the Smith maneuver into that category of rules and strategies that maybe, you know, are 
are maybe 10 years behind as to where we need to be thinking now. But again, I, I could be wrong. I'm sure there's people out there executing this and uh, well, they're it's, shaking it's their heads tool, at us right, right? It's, it's a tool in the toolkit and there's a time and a place to use it. I definitely don't see value behind it today in today's environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, even like, even guys who are lend, like private lending that are using HELOCs and go, and maybe they're Smith maneuvering, right? I mean, I guess they would be realistically like, cause I'm sure they're tax deducting that, that interest cost. So they're borrowing at 8% year that like before they were borrowing at 4% lending out at 14%, 12%, whatever. So they had a big spread. Now you're still only lending at 12 to 14%, but you're borrowing at 8% because of prime plus whatever on a HELOC. And it's just, and we're in a higher risk environment. So to, to take all of that risk for like a 3% spread, there's 3% return, you know, is, is we're not, we're seeing less and less people do it. People exiting the private lending space as a result of that. Right. Yeah. Uh, one you thing have, to actually, sorry, sorry, I was going to no, say, no, no, just, go ahead. just to bring it back to, to the comment you made on, on the HELOC side of things. So even both on the corporate, corporate side of things and the individual side of things, um, there's the accounting principle of matching, right? So you have to make sure that the expenses that you're deducting, um, you're deducting against the income it helped earn. So another consideration for a lot of taxpayers out there is, you know, if you're pulling money out of your primary residence or another residence, call it property A, you're pulling a HELOC to put a down payment or making um, improvements on property B, that in, that interest expense on that component of the HELOC you pulled needs to be deducted against property B, not A, even though that's where the mortgage sits. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And, and I, you know, it's these reasons we have you on because that's just such a common investor thing. Like, oh, you know, that's it's leverage, right? Simply put, it's leverage. I'm going to take money out of this property to improve this one. Um, and, and that's something that we talk about all the time and something that we support, right? Add value investing, the, the power of leverage, all that good stuff. But it's it's in those nuances that you can get lost and you can you can end up paying a whole bunch of tax if you don't do that kind of stuff properly. So um awesome. Dan, any closing questions or remarks for for Patrick while we still have him here? I know he's a busy man these days. I uh, I don't think so. Honestly, I just wanted to say that I appreciate your uh, your insight and expertise always, and I forgive you for um, you know not knowing where the dinner jacket is actually from. <laughs> I think this ends in like us and all of our podcast listeners wearing dinner jackets and having like a wrestling uh, tournament or something, and then the winning city gets the name annual event gonna, at, the, say- at the annual conference. Yeah, we should in the meetups. There should actually be a um, a dinner jacket, uh, you know, contribution across the board. Let's see who has the best one. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm picturing is you know the Anchorman scenes where all the different nudes people show up and yeah. like, oh, we've got the Kenswick <laughs> dinner jackets. <laughs> Maybe and across the, the country. Yeah, over here. yeah, exactly. So. Um, we'll see you guys there in, in your dinner jackets. Patrick, thanks so much as always for coming on. We'll have you back on shortly. I think we've already got another sweet episode lined up about house hacking and your primary residence and tax tips for that. So stay tuned for that, everybody. If anyone has further questions, which I'm sure they will, and we'll have your information in the show notes. But Patrick, where can people get a hold of you? You can find me on Instagram at pcosset, the number one. So it's P-C-O-S-S-E-T-T-E, the number one. Um, or you can reach out to our firm at uh, www.ledgerly.ca. And we're also on Instagram at ledgerlycpa.
Awesome. Thanks, man. Pleasure to have you on as always. Always learn so much. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. See you next time. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.